Lord, this is your word. It is remarkable that you have communicated to yourself in this way this morning. Lord, it shocks us. In some ways, we're appalled at the events of this narrative. And yet, Father, it points to you and your deliverance, and we thank you for it, Lord. We pray that you would enable us to have illumination from your spirit to be able to hear your word rightly and apply it correctly to our lives. May you be glorified in the proclamation of the gospel today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are some passages of Scripture where a preacher does not have to work very hard to keep people's attention. When your text tells the story of a fat, evil king who is craftily assassinated with a concealed, self-made weapon by a left-handed man who tricked that king into a private audience, plunged his blade fully into his corpulent body, and then got away scot-free while the king's men thought he was relieving himself, you know that you have an interesting story. And let's be honest, it is a story that we can't help but stand back a little and shake our heads and let's be frank, smile, right? It's so dark, it's so morbid, but so humorous at the same time. And you should know that that's exactly how it was meant to be read. It was meant to be somewhat satirical, showing God's strength in the light of the hilarity of human folly. The biblical scholar Daniel Block writes about this passage with effective employment of ambiguity, irony, satire, hyperbole, and caricature. He sketches a literary cartoon that pokes fun at the Moabites and brings glory to God. In other words, the gracious God who delivers his paganized people is using a humorous demonstration of the world's folly to showcase his might and beckon his people back to him. So it should make us laugh a little bit, but it should also make us stop and think. Now, imagine you are an Israelite that has been under the oppression of this evil king for 18 years. You have been deeply oppressed and likely taxed to death by this man and his military forces. And what's more, every bit of it is your fault. Because you've abandoned the God who made unbreakable promises to you, unbreakable promises to your people, who delivered you from Egypt and settled you in that very good land. And due to your rebellion towards this heavenly king, this evil earthly king has been allowed to dominate you and dominate your people and dominate your land. But now, the true God does something, doesn't he? And what he does is both shocking and somewhat funny. He lovingly delivers his hurting people in a remarkable, extraordinary way and through the most unexpected of persons. 
This passage in Judges reveals that God delights to save by extraordinary means through unexpected people. Well, let's work through this narrative and then try to connect it to our lives and to our ministry here at Riverside Baptist Church. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. We'll break this down in sections. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Friends, let there be no doubt whatsoever that it was the Lord who brought this upon them. Verse 12 says, The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Due to the evil of the people of Israel, due to their rebellion towards the one and only true God, the Lord God gave strength to another man to accomplish his will. He gave power to another nation to bring his will upon the earth. This was the will of the Lord to bring his judgment upon them. And here, here friends, his sovereignty is revealed as full. It is complete. When it comes to the rule of nations on this planet, God has always been and always will be in complete control. His mastery will always be realized. The prophet Daniel writes in chapter 2 of his book, God changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. In chapter 4 of Daniel's prophecy, he says, actually Nebuchadnezzar speaks, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God does this. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now that is something to keep in mind as we consider Tuesday. If we are citizens of this place, this nation, God is always in complete control of who is in authority, for he has instituted every last one of them. And this means that we can go and we can vote according to God's principles. We can go according to God's principles that are found in his word and trust in his control, not worried about pragmatic arguments, but leaving it to him, the one who sets up kings and lowers kings. If you are an American citizen here this morning and you haven't voted yet, my encouragement to you is please do so. But my encouragement to you is to do so in faith that the God who is over Eglon, the God who is over Moab, is the same God in 2018 and is the sovereign Lord over every leader on this earth, period. We should also not miss the irony found in these first few verses. This is Moab whom God has raised up against Israel. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Abraham, the man from whom all of the Israelites came, was their 
relative to. The irony is that God had previously prevented Moab from bringing any harm to his special covenant people, Israel. In Numbers chapters 22 through 24, there's a man named Balak, who is the evil king of the Moabites. And he wanted to curse Israel and bring destruction down upon Israel. But the Lord in those verses would not let him. Instead, he protected his people in that day. But now, here we are in Judges chapter 3, and God has allowed the same descendants of Lot to bring great harm down upon Israel. The difference between Numbers chapter 22 and Judges chapter 3 is Israel's sin. Now, notice what Eglon did. He raised up an army of Moabites with Ammonites and Amalekites to help to attack across the fords of the Jordan River. And upon defeating God's chosen people, Eglon set up government near the city of Palms, verse 13 says. Which, if you look in the context of how that city is described in other places, is probably a reference to Jericho. And that, again, is a sad irony if it's Jericho that is referred to by the city of Palms. Because Jericho is the city that Israel once defeated by merely marching around that city on seven consecutive days. And now that city, Jericho, has been overtaken by Eglon and the Moabites and made his headquarters in the land. For 18 years, Israel served this evil king, which meant that they regularly would have paid him an expensive tribute. Now, notice verses 15 through 23. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So, once again, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, And the Lord graciously raised up a deliverer. Now, this is not because their hearts were truly repentant. We know that because we've read the rest of the book. But because God loved them and was tender to their cries, even though they deserved the circumstances that they were in. This deliverer named Ehud, uh, and we are told something about this man named Ehud, something very peculiar about him here. We are told that he is a left-handed man. Now, that's kind of an odd detail to include in a story. Why on earth is that significant? Today, we have left-handedness, and it isn't all that remarkable. Although, if you're a left-handed pitcher with a hard fastball and a devastating slider, it's very much coveted. 
And recently at Disney Springs, I did see that they even had a left-handed store, oddly enough. So there is a little bit of significance, but why does he include that here? Well, remember, Judges was written in Hebrew, and therefore, it's hard to bring some of those things out in English. Sometimes languages don't cross over as easily as we would hope they would. Well, it says that Ehud was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's significant, because the word Benjamin, the name Benjamin, literally means son of the right hand. So Ehud is of the sons of the right hand, but we're told that he's a left-handed man. That's not by accident that we're told that. But the term left-handed actually is not the normal term for left-handedness used throughout the rest of Scripture. Instead, this term seems to carry the idea of one using the left arm because they've been trained not to depend upon the right arm. This probably refers to someone who has learned to use his left hand for a specific purpose. Now, back in Iowa, it's not uncommon to see a farmer walking around with a missing arm. Fairly frequently you'll see that. Because back in the old days, those guys would get their arms caught in those big old massive grain augers, and they would often lose them. And when they would lose them, they would then have to relearn everything and learn to do everything with the one good arm they had left. Well, the idea with Ehud is that he trained himself to use his left hand in such a way that he was just as skilled with it as he was with his right. That The language is almost as if his right arm is confined somehow in the Hebrew so that he's able to use his left hand. Now, here is yet another irony. The Benjamites, remember, the sons of the right hand, were actually a tribe that was renowned for its left-handed warriors. Isn't that funny? Look over at chapter 20. Hold your hand here, but go to chapter 20 and look at verses 15 and 16. Chapter 20 of Judges, verse 15, And the people of Benjamin, so sons of the right hand, the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. What scholars surmise is that the ability to use one's left hand in that day gave a warrior an advantage over his right-handed counterparts. When all of the military forces in that day and age were trained to hold a shield with the left hand and a sword or a spear with the right hand, this gave a strategic advantage to the left-handed man who could use both equally with strength. Now the same was true for a man who could sling a rock, sling some type of device to impale someone. He could equally throw from different angles from different hands. So the ambidextrous warrior was highly valued in that day. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 2, it says this, They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen. So Ehud, of the tribe of Benjamin, God's deliverer, was a left-handed man. Now here's how it went down. 
Israel sent tribute to Eglon through Ehud. And we have no information whatsoever as to why he was the chosen emissary on this mission. But Ehud, in verse 16, it tells us, had previously been hard at work planning for this opportunity. It says he made a sword with two edges rather than just one. It was one cubit in length. A cubit was generally speaking the length from the end of the elbow to the tip of the middle finger, roughly about 18 inches, depending upon the size of people in that day. And he concealed it underneath his right thigh, either the inner or the outer. And that's significant as well. It was a two-edged sword so that he could stab rather than slash. And being a left-handed man, he concealed this blade on his right side underneath his clothes, it tells us. Now again, remember, the warriors in that day were almost exclusively trained with the sword in their right hand, sheathed on the left side of their bodies. Therefore, the Moabites probably wouldn't have checked his right leg to the level that they would check Ehud's left leg. Pretty crafty fellow, wasn't he? Well, Ehud, along with a caravan of other people, he went and presented tribute to Eglon. And it is here in verse 17 that we are satirically told that Eglon was a very fat man. So after leaving, Ehud sends the rest of his caravan of Israelites away and he returns. And it says in verse 19 that he turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Now that's significant. That too is ironic. That is sadly ironic. Just listen to what happened in Joshua chapter 4 about Gilgal. In Joshua 4 verse 19, it says this, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up, as a, uh, set up at Gilgal. So according to Joshua 4, this location of Gilgal was to be a place of remembrance of when God first brought his people into the promised land. But now, sadly, ironically, Gilgal was littered with idols. So it says that when he walks by Gilgal, he's walking by the idols, either the idols of Eglon or probably more likely the idols set up by the people of Israel themselves. When Ehud returns to Eglon, he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And i got to be honest with you, when I read that, to, to me this is the equivalent of saying, hey, look, there's something on your shirt. And then when the person looks down, you tap them up on the nose. It, it seems that dumb, right? Evidently, Eglon was so amused for whatever reason so amused with knowing whatever secrets he could find that he fell for Ehud's trap. And this is dripping with satirical humor. This is meant to make the people of Israel laugh over the folly of Gentile idol worshipers and instead look to their God. The folly of Eglon is on full display here in this text. Well, the king, he commands the room to be silent and his sentries leave. And then Ehud repeats the statement, but this time he expands on it. He says in verse 20, I have a message from God for you. And this seems to really get his attention because Eglon rises up from his seat. And then Ehud, he reaches with his left hand, he withdraws the sword from his right, and he stabs Eglon in the belly. 
And now it gets gross. Now it gets disgusting. Now we get to the delight of every junior high boy. The man was so obese that the blade went in entirely. Even the hilt of it was covered by the fat of this man. And then we see the end result. It says, his dung came out. Evidently, the body of this dying king had a most unpleasant reaction after he was struck. It is that disgusting. Ehud then left the roof chamber, which was perhaps the top of the building. We're not exactly sure what this phrasing means. And he somehow closed and locked the doors and he somehow left. And Eglon, the foolish king of Moab, was left dead on the floor. Now look at verses 24 and 25. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. This is like something out of Shakespeare. The humor written into the narrative is just striking. Think about how much planning Ehud would have made. But also, as you read this, think about how much God's hand must have been, un- must have been superintending this entire process that's going on. Ehud, he, or Eglon, he fell for this trick and, and, and he'd already learned to use his left hand and the soldiers left the room just because he said silence and he allows him to come back into his presence a second time. Really strange and God is superintending the whole thing and he goes on, it continues. The servants, they come back and they see the doors to the roof chamber that they are locked and they think that the king is relieving himself. Now, why would they think that the king is relieving himself? Well, if you go back up a couple of verses, you understand. I hate to be gross, but it probably smelled. This is disgusting, but this is somewhat humorous to realize what it also is. It is a revelation of God's sovereign hand that even in that way, God can orchestrate his glory for his own name. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. For all of Ahud's planning, it still came down to the Lord bringing about the deliverance. Well, embarrassed after a long wait, the king's servants finally enter and they discover him dead. And then verse 26, Ahud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols, there it is again, and escaped to Sarah, And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Ehud evidently had more than enough time to flee away. Again, past those same idols at Gilgal. Isn't it interesting how the narrative continues to point that out for us? The God who's delivering his people is the people who live in a land of idolatry. 
He then sounded the trumpet for all of those in Ephraim to come and to fight. And and Ehud was going to be their leader. And he says to them in verse 28, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Rightly, Ehud shows where the victory ultimately comes from. The sovereign Lord of Israel. God delighted to save them by extraordinary means through an unexpected person. And the people went and fought. And they took the fords of the Jordan, which was the only place where the Moabites could have crossed over the river Jordan to get back to the land of Moab. And they killed, it says, 10,000 of them. None of them escaped. This was complete deliverance from this evil oppression. And once again, We see what's physically given to them at the end in verse 30 and what spiritually we should understand when we look to our deliverer sent by God. Israel had rest for 80 years just as those people who know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ have rest for all eternity. They would have another opportunity to look to God. They would have another opportunity to serve God They would again have another chance to love God alone as their Lord and their God. But sadly, though they were delivered from Moab, though Ehud had brought this deliverance, their hearts were still in bondage to sin and they returned to their evil ways. But now see verse 31. Look who God delights to use now. It says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now this verse tells us very little about this man. Apart from a very simple reference a couple of chapters later, we don't have much of anything about this man, but it does once again show us that God delights to save by extraordinary means through unexpected people. Do you catch that, all of you unexpected people who need extraordinary means? God delights to save by by extraordinary means through unexpected people. And Shamgar was a perfect example because he was likely not an Israelite. Likely, he was not a worshiper of the one true God. Shamgar likely was probably an idol-worshiping Gentile, and God used him. His name is Shamgar, the son of Anath. Now, Shamgar seems to be a Gentile name. The structure of it is not Hebrew very well at all. And that term, son of Anath, was likely an expression of dedication to the Canaanite idol who was so frequently worshipped in that day, known as Anath. This seems to be telling us that Shamgar was a devoted follower of this false god. So what do we make of that if that's the case? Well, probably he was not intentionally serving the Lord or intentionally serving the interests of Israel when he defeated these Philistines and brought salvation to them. Probably this is a man who was acting in his own interests or in the interests of another nation when he did what he did. But what we discover is that God was behind this and even used this to again save his people. So question for you, does God ever use non-believing, rebellious people to bring about his will? Absolutely he does. He used Eglon, an idol-worshiping Gentile, to bring judgment upon the Israelites. 
And now he uses Shamgar, an idol-worshipping Gentile, to bring salvation to the Israelites. Isn't that so like God? Friends, be shocked. Be shocked in your minds and in your hearts over the lengths that God will go to deliver his beloved chosen ones. An ox goad, a long pole with a metal tip used to prod livestock along, was used by a Gentile to kill 600 of God's people's enemies. Extraordinary means, unexpected people. God delights to use the most extraordinary means through the most unexpected people to bring about salvation. He used a devious, left-handed man named Ehud to take one great swipe, one big stab to bring a great power to justice. And he used an idol-worshiping Gentile named Shamgar to oddly bring deliverance to God's special set-apart people. He sent his only son, Jesus, God of very God. And what did he send his only son, Jesus, to do? To take on the flesh of man. And in a human body, the likes of which we see with my being sick last week, with Tim graciously leading us in prayer as he's sick today, as many of you have faced it with all of our weak bodies, all of our disabilities that we have, in a human body, God's son, Jesus Christ, he came to earth, he obeys and fulfills the whole law of Moses that you and I could never stand up to. He initiated a new covenant for us through his own blood as he shed that blood on a cross in payment for the sin of his people and then rising again he brings resurrection and eternal life to all who believe upon him what extraordinary means and who would have ever thought that God would send his son and slay him on a cross God used his son on a cross to save his rebellious paganized loved people he delights to save by extraordinary means in the most unexpected ways friends he delights to save you this morning. I live across the parking lot, and I can tell you one of the things that we see on a daily basis is some very rough individuals who walk by. And when we go up to Sims Park, we see, some, we see more very rough individuals, men and women of all ages. And when we see them, you just kind of know, you at least suspect that these are people, this is a person that's struggling with addiction. This is a person who uh, is imprisoned to some thing in their life that's devastating them. They oftentimes look much older than they actually are. They don't always seem to have all of their wits about them. And boy, your heart just cries out to them because they are in bondage, friends. They, like us, are in bondage. And the only hope for them, the only hope for us, is that a God would delight to save his people with remarkable means by a remarkable person, his son Jesus Christ. And so we seek to find some way to reach out and love them, some way to befriend them, some way to get to know them, that they might see that there is hope, that there is deliverance in this earth, and it comes from above, not here below. It comes where it's unexpected. So he delights to save this morning, and oh, he delights to save you. He wants to save you. There are some who have been sitting here for decades after decade, and they have not repented of their sins. 
They have not put their faith in Christ. They have in their inner parts leaned upon their own works of righteousness, unwilling to admit that they are devastated by sin and need the Savior, Jesus Christ. So friends, realize a mighty God who is mighty to save. He offers you deliverance and he delights to do it. He's provided a remarkable King Jesus and he's done it in the most unexpected of ways by putting his own son on the cross to pay the price for your sins and sending his spirit through him that you might be new and have new life from now and forevermore. So repent and believe. So that's what he does. He loves to do it that way. And with this, isn't it amazing, isn't it shocking that this same God, he delights to use a church of redeemed sinners, a group of weak, needy people to take his most powerful message of salvation to a lost world. He doesn't call an angelic force down to take the message. No, he gives us his spirit and he gives us his word and he says, go forth. He gives it to us. People who have a hard time getting up in the morning. God delights to use even the dullest and the weakest of us. He uses the dumb ones. He uses me. I'm not calling you names, but he uses you. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And see what Paul says. Verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 7 through 10. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God keeps us weak to keep us from pride. Have you ever wondered why when you pray for God to give you deliverance from some physical issue or from some spiritual weakness and you don't see the immediate result that you're hoping for, do you ever wonder why God does that? Paul was a man who had seen great revelations from Jesus Christ Jesus Christ had revealed himself to him in powerful, miraculous ways. And what did God do when he had given him such gifts? He allows him to be struck in his flesh. And we have no idea what that is. But we know that it makes him a weak man. And this is a good thing that he's made a weak man. Because when he is weak, then God can be shown as strong. When we are weak, God sometimes answers our prayers with a no 
Yes, God says no. He does everything for your good, always, period. And sometimes that means he says no, because he wants to show his power through you, a weak channel. His grace, Paul says, is sufficient for him. It's sufficient for us. It's sufficient for believers of all days. When he says grace, that isn't just talking about God's sweetness and tenderness to us. He's talking about grace in the sense of power, God's strength, God's love being given to us so that we are enabled to put up with our weakness and still serve. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is enough when we're weak. It is enough when we're hurting. God's power is made perfect in our weakness because his power is all the more revealed when we, in our weaknesses, are used to demonstrate his glory. How does God get more glory? By seeing great things done through really strong people or through seeing his strength made known as it is accomplished through weak people? He gets more glory through the latter. And we must be content to serve him even with all of our frailties. We live in a state that is filled with the aged. And I have pastored many aged people over the years and many of the godly ones, they come and they say, Joe, what can I do to serve? It's so hard just to do the simplest things. And I just cherish when they ask that question because their heart just shines through. How can you bring the message to others when you can't walk or you can't see very good? How can you bring the message to others when you can't get up most mornings because of debilitating pain? How can you glorify God in your life when you have cancer or diabetes or, or kidney stones or simply old age? How can you serve him when that's the case? And what's more, how can you serve him with the gospel when you know your own sinfulness? When you look inside your own heart and you know that you failed today, you failed this hour. How can I dare go and share the words of Jesus Christ, the message that saves sinners, when I know that I struggle with whatever it might be? How can we do that? How can we do that when the spiritual weakness we carry seems so profound and the answer is to take what you've been given already by this God, which is ample. To ask God to show his strength in you, even though you're weak. And then prayerfully focus on taking that good message to one person. Oh, if that's you, love your wife. If that's you, love your child. If that's you, love the lady who lives next door. If that's you, love the man who mows the lawn the same time every Saturday that you mow yours. If that's you, love the kid in the class who doesn't get talked to a whole lot. If that's you, find one simple person. Evangelicalism is off track when we try to tell people that your responsibility is to go and share the gospel with everybody you come encounter with. Can I just tell you to drop that aside and go and focus on sharing the gospel with one and then see what God does with that. Even in your old age, you can share the gospel. Even in your old age. So Christian, God delights to use you. He delighted to use some interesting men 
And I tell you, as we learn more about future judges, you're going to see that these men not only get more interesting, but they get more depraved. If you can use a guy like Ehud, if you can use a guy like Shamgar, if you can go on and use a guy like Samson and Jephthah, then I think he can probably use me. And brother and sister in Christ, he can certainly use you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for its truth once again. We thank you that you are a God who magnifies your strength by using things and using people that we wouldn't expect, Lord, and we would almost think was impossible. I mean, Lord, how could a man enter into the throne room of a foreign king, an evil man, just by giving him a simple trick? Lord, how could you put a man in such a circumstance and then ordain all of the events, even the disgusting items of this passage to come about, Lord, so that your people could be saved? Lord, you reveal your strength all the time, even in light of our weakness. So Lord, please, Lord, please help us to trust you. Help us to see that no matter what condition we're in, we can bring glory to you. We can be a part of the ministry of disciple-making, whether that be building up believers in Jesus Christ or sharing the good news with those who don't know your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And that we can do it by focusing on what you have given us, starting small and depending upon the God who is mighty to save. We thank you for your good hand upon us and pray that you would watch over us now. In Jesus' name, amen.